You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. This morning we'll be starting in 1 Corinthians 8, which I learned this Friday at breakfast, which was a really cool thing to learn. Anyone at the table could have taught it. (laughs) So, we'll be reviewing for those of you that were at that table. Uh, Although they say that what happens at the Houdal stays at the Houdal. Nevertheless, we will be discussing some of what we discussed that morning. So let's open in prayer. Father, your word is perfect. It is effective. It is powerful. It divides and it reconnects. Lord, we are just so grateful that every morning, every day that we are able to spend time in your word, we learn more of you. We learn more ways that you are so good to us. We learn to love you. And we'll study that. We'll talk about that this morning, Lord, that knowing you and loving you is better than knowledge. And so thank you this morning as we we look into your word. We look to be challenged. We look to be encouraged. We look to be blessed. We look to be convicted. And we'll thank you, your Holy Spirit, for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to read the whole chapter, chapter 8. There's no way we'll get through the whole thing today, but but I can tantalize you. 1 Corinthians, chapter 8, which... Some people wonder about this chapter. It looks like it was plopped in the middle of 1 Corinthians as an afterthought. But if you connect it to chapter 7, where Paul is is encouraging the Corinthians to be holy, to do everything all to the glory of Christ, to defer to brothers, to... to um, that you can be a good... you can be a good, solid Christian in whatever situation you were called to, Paul fleshes that out in chapter 8 in some measure. But uh, there's a lot more to chapter 8 than that. But it wasn't plopped in the middle. It's perfectly at home. And the Holy Spirit was, as we know, eminently um, perfect in giving this to Paul to follow chapter 7, although we've put the numbers have been put there in the last, uh, I don't know, in the 900s or something. But at any rate, chapter 8 is something like a mini Galatians in the middle of the book of 1 Corinthians. And it's a good thing. Let's read chapter 8. 1 Corinthians 8. Now, 1 Corinthians 1.8. Now, concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, Not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care, lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. 
For if someone seems, sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose, for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died, and thus by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, to stumble, I will never eat meat again that I might not cause my brother to stumble. When we're reading this chapter and studying this section, as we talk about eating, eating meat offered to idols, we need to remember that it was a package. Um, in those days, it was very rare to get the good kind of food that was offered to idols and actually be able to eat it, especially if you were in the lower classes. And it wasn't just going to the market and buying the meat. It was actually going into the temple partaking of the meat there into an idol's temple. That was part and parcel of what was going on in this part, in this time in Greece, in uh, in Corinth. So chapter 8 deals with something that, as we read it, today can almost seem silly. Uh, the answer pops immediately to mind. But it wasn't so simple in first century Corinth. Often these temple meals were the only opportunity for a first century Greek to get some meat. One commentator put it this way. He said, um, barley meal, olives, a little wine, fish as a relish, meat only on high holidays, such as the, was, such was the normal diet. As Zimmern has said, the usual Attic diet consisted of two courses. The first, a kind of porridge, and the second, a kind of porridge. Were you supposed to teach today, Jess? <laughs> the first, a kind of porridge, and the second, a kind of porridge. Doesn't that sound tantalizing? What do you think of when you think of porridge besides the three little bears? Oatmeal? What else? It would not have been as wonderful as oatmeal. It would not have had cow's milk in it. It would have been something that had some of us looked at it, we would have said, who cleaned out the toilet and put it in the bowl? Yeah, a porridge and a kind of porridge for the second course. This chapter, the chapter starts with Paul's statement that he's going to be dealing with another question the Corinthians had. Now, concerning the things sacrificed to idols. So, remember, he keeps responding to the letters that the Corinthians, the letter that the Corinthians had written to him. Now, concerning... Your virgins. Now concerning this. Now concerning that. And now he's saying, now concerning things sacrificed to idols. It, this chapter is dealing with Christian liberty in a way found elsewhere most often in the book of Galatians. He is still dealing with the Corinthians' deviant worship of knowledge. Their tendency to feel superior when some of them seem to have more knowledge than their brothers. This chapter will help the Corinthians see how to properly, properly use their Christian liberty without suffering under legalism or license. It's typical of Paul to state the problem, anticipating possibly a logical discourse dealing specifically with the problem stated. Now, support concerning things sacrificed to idol, we know that we all have knowledge. But then he opens the discussion with a statement about love. So he says in verse 1, Now concerning things offered sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. 
Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. The Greeks and the Romans were polytheistic. They had gods. They had many gods. They had gods for every circumstance, every need, every hope, every activity, even every concern. They had gods for war, gods for love, gods for travel, gods and goddesses for justice, for merriment, for nature, for water. I have to confess, when I saw it, when I was writing this up and I put the word travel in there, what immediately popped to my mind was the St. Christopher's bobblehead on the dash of a car. (laughs) Okay, it's not so funny. But at any rate, when I was a child, that's what we had. Because I think he's the patron saint of travel, is he not? He was supposed to have carried Jesus across a a brook or something. I, I can't remember. That was way, way many years ago. But they had gods for all of these things, for merriment, for nature, for water. You name it, there was a god or a goddess for it. In fact, one of the early charges against the Corinthians was that they were atheists because they only worshipped one god. He starts this chapter answering another one of the questions in a letter they sent to him mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 7-1. It may very well be that they asked the question in a condescending, impossible, possibly polemic or, or unkind way. Uh, and so he answers them. Yes, we all know. We know. We all have knowledge. But then he reminds them that knowledge makes people arrogant, can make people arrogant. But that love builds up. The word he chooses for arrogant is a word that actually sounds like its definition. It's a, it's a word that means to be puffed up or blown up. And if when you say it, fusio, it's what sounds like the, they wouldn't have known this, but to us today, it's something like the sound of popping a blown up balloon, which is actually what should happen to knowledgeable, arrogant people. They should have their balloon popped. This is the word he chose. While knowledge offered in the arrogant manner the Corinthians would would have used would tear down, Paul reminds them that love builds up. Again, there's nothing wrong with knowledge. It's just that knowledge applied without love tears down. It's arrogant. Well, this doesn't necessarily, the word that he uses for builds up doesn't necessarily mimic the sound of construction. It is a perfect word because it means to build up. And it also means to help someone stand. Uh... It's the word okadomio. It's to to build up, to create, to build a house, to build someone up, to help them stand, help them be strong, help them be sturdy, help them be understanding, help them be complete. That's what we as what mature Christians should look at as one of their responsibilities to less mature Christians. We're to protect them. We're to help them stand. We're to make them sturdy. We're to build them up. We're to love them. We're to love each other. It's a perfect word. So this is Paul's counsel at the very beginning of the chapter. He starts out, don't tear down, find out how to help someone else stand. So the book of Hebrews, and and at some point in our lifetime, I understand Jim's going to get into that book, um, in the 2017s, maybe, you think? 2018s? Oh, good, good. That's, I'm looking forward to that. Maybe it'll take as long as John? So more like four or five years. Okay, good. I, I joke, but that's wonderful when someone will dig that deep into God's Word and be used by His Holy Spirit to build us up. That's what Paul's saying here. Build them up. <laughs> Hebrews says this, Hebrews 12, 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. In First Thessalonians, Paul admonishes those Thessalonians to encourage those who are faint-hearted to help the weak, to be patient with people. He says in 5, 4, 
Verse, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with people. Be patient with everyone. And finally, in Romans, Paul encourages those who are strong to bear the weaknesses of those who are not and not just please themselves. This should especially appeal to the Corinthians. It should be a wake-up to the call to those who were arrogant about their knowledge. Romans 5, 15, 1 and 2. Now, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. Same word, to his building up. So this, this is to say at the beginning of this particular instruction, not that knowledge is bad, but that knowledge applied without love produces arrogance. Every time. It produces arrogance. Different levels. This chapter deals essentially with Christian liberty. Uh, and as a summary, I want to give you this summary when I was studying one of the commentaries I've been using is Barclays. And he does an excellent job in summarizing this chapter. And we're going to use that. That's kind of going to be some of the, the pegs that we hang our information on as we go through this. He said this, what? What is safe for one man may be quite unsafe for another. It has been said, and it is blessedly true, that God has his own secret stairway into every heart. But it is equally true that the devil has his own secret and subtle stairway into every heart. We may be strong enough to resist some temptation, but it may well be that someone else is not. Something may be no temptation whatever to us, but it may be a violent temptation to someone else. Therefore, in considering whatever we will, whether we will or will not do anything, we must not think only of its effect on us, but of its effect on others as well. That's the first point. The second point is nothing ought to be judged solely from the point of view of knowledge. Everything ought to be judged from the point of view of love. The argument of the advanced Corinthians was that they knew better than to regard an idol as anything. Their knowledge had taken them far past that. There is always a certain danger in knowledge. It tends to make a man arrogant and feel superior and look down unsympathetically on the man who is not as far advanced as himself. Knowledge which does not, which does that is not true knowledge. But the consciousness of intellectual superiority is a dangerous thing. Our conduct should always be guided not by the thought of our own superior knowledge, but by sympathetic and considerate love for our fellow man. And it may be, it may well be that for his sake we must refrain from doing and saying certain otherwise legitimate things. And then third, in this little, um, list, this leads to the greatest truth of all. No man has any right to indulge in a pleasure or to demand a liberty which may be the ruination of someone else. He may have the strength of mind and will to keep that pleasure in its proper place. That course of action may be safe enough for him, but he is not only himself to think about. He must think of the weaker brother. An indulgence which may be the ruin of someone else is not a pleasure, but a sin. It's a high responsibility that uh, as you become more mature in the in the Word of God, much is given, much is required. To whom much is given, much is required. True Christian liberty is not trampling the weaker brother. And we'll see that Paul doesn't intend for us to be constrained by weaker consciences all our lives, conscious consciences all our lives. But there's an implicit point that he makes at the end of this chapter where he says, if so if my eating meat will cause my brother to stumble, I will never eat it again. That's an interesting point. Any comments about verse one? Questions? Concerns. Verse two. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. All of us know people that think they know everything. 
Um, we, we all know people that way. They are some of the most frustrating people to be around, aren't they? Coming from verse 1, which specifies that unloving knowledge puffs up, Paul builds on that by saying that these people really don't know anything. They don't know as they ought to. This can even be looked at as an early prelude to chapter 13, the love chapter, they call it, where he says, if I have not this, I'm but as, and he explains how all the things that that, uh, wonderful people have, but if they're not constrained by love, they have nothing. They have nothing. They don't know as they ought to. So, there Paul details in chapter 13, he details all the attributes of agape love, and, and we will get there someday. It is clear from the context that to properly know is to apply love, is to apply love in your knowledge. Just when we think we know everything about something, we find another facet that we didn't consider. Just when we think we know everything about someone, the same thing happens. It is better for us to humbly acknowledge that we will never know everything. In fact, we will know, never know everything about the simplest matters in life. I've been married to my wife for 40 years now, and she still surprises me. In a good way. In a good way, most of the time. <laughs> I see some married couples going, oh, God, sorry. He was just being nice when he said that. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna read, when, when I used to, years ago I used to really be involved in science, and I love some of Thomas's posts where he says, science again proves that science is not a science. And, uh, if I can get to this. Early on, uh, oh, I don't remember how many years ago, when they were first coming in contact with what they call string theory and quantum chromodynamics, they were trying to figure out what made atoms stick together. And so they came up with, and, and you have to understand that some of this stuff, most of this stuff is just theoretical because it changes all the time. For example, uh, I remember when National Geographic came out, it was in the mid-70s when one of the, one of the early, early... Um, Pieces of equipment flew by Saturn. And National Geographic was trumpeting the fact that they were going to have to change all their theories about Saturn. It's completely different than they thought it were, was, were, was. And, uh, so that, at the time, I didn't think about it. But then, as I was in college and I was a committed, I was a committed evolutionist and I knew everything about evolution. If you wanted to, to know about evolution, just ask this arrogant dummy and, and you would have got a fire hydrant worth of information that was worth about as much as less than the water that came out of the hydrant. And at that time, I believe it was when Louis Leakey discovered the Australopithecines, and that changed the entire evolution picture of the human species completely. It drove it back, it drove it deeper, it changed their look, it changed their advancement, it changed the interims. And that's when I first, I remember first thinking, I wonder if they know what they're talking about. Well, I know now that when you can find a pill, I mean a tooth, construct a man out of it, and then a year or two later find out it was a pig, and try to figure out how to back your way out of it so you can keep getting your grants, they probably don't know what they're talking about. Or they're just like the rest of us. They're full of pride and full of arrogance, and they make things out of whole cloth up in order to support their own simple theories. When we think we know everything about something, we don't. Anyway, back to this. So, and this is just really quickly. The pieces that make up the nucleus, you all know what an atom is. It's got a nucleus, it's got protons, it's got neutrons, it's got little electrons that spin around it and, and go really, really fast. What makes up the 
neutrons and protons. So they came up with the name of these things called quarks. Well, what holds them together? How can they stay together if especially like they've got the same charge? Let's call it gluon. That's what it's called. So anyway, the point I'm making is just when we think we know something about everything, we find out we don't. And we need to recognize science is fine, but science without love is pure arrogance. And it can be destructive. And it can be used for destructive ends. And Paul says that here in verse 2. If anyone supposes he knows anything, he's not yet known. He does not yet know as he ought to know. What is the most important thing? But if anyone loves God, verse 3, he is known by him. Here, very succinctly put, is the important knowledge that one should know God and love him and that because of the intermediary work of Christ, we are known Loved and protected and saved by God Himself. Loving God is indicative of the right, of a right relationship with Him. It's indicative of it. Then that one who loves God is indwelt by His Holy Spirit and has the wisdom of God at His disposal as long as he recognizes that need and humbly, as James says, comes to Him asking for it. So in these three verses, Paul gives us the ruler by which we are to be guided and that ruler is love, not knowledge. The tape measure is love, not inches. It's love. Knowledge certainly has its place, but in the, in the paradigm of biblical Christianity, it must be put in the context of loving, its, of loving others. Thus, we do not become high and mighty, thrilled that we have our superior knowledge and we can impart it to our lowly neighbors. Rather, we recognize our need for God and His wisdom and we beseech Him for it on behalf of others. That man is rightly positioned to make the proper judgment about how to respond to a weaker brother. Um, there's a critical exegetical, a critical and exegetical summary commentary on the New Testament, and the one on uh, Robertson's one on the First uh, Corinthians. He says this: Consequently, the man who loves God is the one who can rightly solve the question about food offered to idols. What effect will his partaking of it have on his fellow Christians? Progress in holiness. That is to be hoped. The fact is, it is far more important for us to be known by God than it is for him to know, for us to know him. For as one man said, think about this in the context of the sovereignty of our almighty heavenly father, of our almighty God. He said this, if a man loves God, this is a sign that God has taken the initiative. So I'm not into signs and wonders. But that's a sign. If a man loves God, it's a sign that God has taken the initiative to draw that man, that woman, to himself. And that's a wondrous thing. Why would he? Why would he? Any questions, comments about verse 3? Therefore, verse 4, concerning the things, the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. So, here comes the crux of the matter broached in verse 1. The Corinthians were boastfully aware that they knew there was no such thing as an idol. That is, that there was only one God. Paul acknowledges that now and he reminds his hearers, yes, 
there is only one God, metaphorically in other places, in Psalm 82, in Exodus 21, in Exodus 4, in Exodus 7, and a couple of other places, the word God is ascribed to other things, including men. These are only forms of speech. The uniform testimony of Scripture is that there is but one God expressed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In this context, Paul is asserting that idols are not gods. Following on this, the eating of things sacrificed to nothing has no effect on the mature Christian. So, I I was trying to liken it to something in modern day, but, um, you know, I don't know if M&Ms have ever been used to sacrifice to idols. But if they were, I could eat them. Because I know there's nothing behind this idol. There's no God. There is one God. Following on this, so in sum, an understanding Christian with the love of God in his heart can eat meat that was sacrificed to an idol without worry. Idols are not gods, but behind them, as Paul will acknowledge, possibly can be demons. Even so, though, demons are not gods, but created beings, as we know, that have fallen, that have fallen from from service to God. So therefore, the concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, Paul says, he acknowledges to the Christians, we know. There is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. Any questions, comments about verse 4? So he's building on this slow but sure. For verse 5, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, the pagan Greeks, as mentioned before, had a multiplicity of gods, and Paul acknowledges this. There is one true God, There is no true God but one. But nevertheless, men in their wickedness acknowledge every demon behind every rock as a God. About a year or two before writing this epistle, Paul was embarked on his third missionary journey. And he had a run-in with a man named Demetrius over false gods. And you can clearly see what Demetrius was saying, why they worship these false gods. He was a moneymaker. It involved silver. It involved payments. It involved lucre. Acts 19, 23 through 27. About that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. Did you catch that? He was bringing no, he was bringing a lot of business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. <laughs> What's it depend on? The worship of false gods. You see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. And we'll lose a whole bunch of money, by the way. Clearly, Paul did not believe that these demons were actually gods, but he was willing to acknowledge that pagans thought they were. His use of the phrase so-called gods shows his disdain for false gods, and yet he does acknowledge that some believe in them. And some are troubled by it. Some are troubled by the meat that was offered to them in the, in the pagan temples. Any questions about verse 5? Clearly, in the Christian church, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are in positions of responsibility should benefit 
in a blessed way from the care of those that they are teaching. But they should not be in it for that. They should be in it because their, their desire, their goal is to bring the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ to their brothers and sisters. Yet for us, Paul says in verse 6, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. What a, what a telling statement for the deity of Christ. <clears throat> this is essentially what Paul says here, a distillation of the Hebrew Shema, which Paul would have learned as a child and which every Jewish child knew by heart. It was a statement of the reality of one God and that one God was worthy of devotion. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. This would have been a staple of every Jewish household. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is our God and the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall walk in them, shall talk of them, excuse me, when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Shema Yisrael Adonai Elohinu Adonai Echad. That's what they would have said probably much better than I just did. But here, Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. So Paul was, any of the Jews in the congregation would have known immediately. And the better taught Corinthians would have had this information given to them the years before when Paul founded this church and taught them early on. It is important to note as well that Paul emphasized here that God does not exist for us. We can't forget that. He's not an omnipotent bellhop at our every beck and call. He is so far removed from us that it's unbelievable. And yet He comes close through the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet He makes His wisdom available to us through the Holy Spirit. We exist for Him. He does not exist for us. We exist for Him. For Him. All things were created by the Lord Jesus Christ and we exist through Him. There is only one way to come to the Father, and that is through the Son. And He is Lord. This, well, I don't have it up there, but you have it in your Bibles. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things. We exist for Him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. And we exist through Him. By, for, and through the Father and the Son. Now, the Holy Spirit isn't mentioned here. Um, Paul didn't need to, to do that. But it's implicit as well that in the Trinity we exist. In the Trinity we exist for them. And they have come to us and made us, by their grace, children of the Most High. It's, it's a, a remarkable thing, an unbelievable and awesome thing. Verse 6. Any questions or comments about verse 6? Or concerns? Verse 7. However, <laughs> but, it's like point A, point B, point C, point D, point E. However, he says, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to an idol until now, 
Eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. So he alludes to the possibility that someone whose conscience could be defiled by eating this food is eating it. wonder who's causing that. Who would cause someone to do something that would violate their own conscience? We'll get to that. Many of the new converts to Christianity, having been exposed to proper theological training, would know that there is only one right God. But not all of them may have divested themselves of the idea of the other false gods and so that they did not know that there was really only one God. They knew there was one right God, but they didn't maybe didn't know that there was only one God. This is an excellent example of progressive sanctification. As one becomes more and more immersed in the Word of God, one learns more and more about and of God. And his previous false ideas are corrected one by one. Aren't all of us there? Slowly but surely over the years, we've discovered truth in the Scriptures that went against our cherished beliefs. And the answer was either to reject the Scripture and keep the cherished belief or acknowledge the Scripture, bend the knee at the foot of the throne of God, and trash the old false theology. I had to do that with evolution. I had to do that with all of my false preconceived ideas about evolution. And it wasn't, actually that was one that wasn't that difficult. It was slow but sure. I had people challenging me in my life. Um, the fellow who led me to the Lord and, and then a pastor that I knew, they would, they would just chip away politely, kindly, at that false view of what about this and what about that? And, you know, I hadn't, what do you think the word day means in Genesis 1? And, you know, I, I had all kinds of false edifications concocted and built up. But slowly but surely, I was, as I was becoming more and more knowledgeable of the Word of God, God's Word and the Holy Spirit uh, removed those false ideas. And that's what's happened. That's what can happen. So, as one learns more of God, your, his false previous ideas, his false, his previous false ideas are corrected one by one. When Paul says that their conscience is weak, what he is simply saying is, noting is that they have been under paganism so long, it will take time for them to get to the point of knowledge, the knowledge of the more theologically sound, the more theologically sound Corinthians. So in, uh, in the exegetical commentary, one of the ones I'm reading, it's, it's the force of habit which lasts even until now. They have been so accustomed to regard an idol as a reality, as representing a God that exists, that even now, in spite of their conversion, they cannot get rid of the feeling that by eating food which has been offered to an idol, they're taking part in the worship of heathen gods. They cannot eat. Consequently, when the example of other Christians encourages them to eat meat of this kind, they do what they feel to be wrong. Missionaries at the present day have similar experiences. A belief in witchcraft long continues to lurk in otherwise well-instructed Christians and, and against their reason and their conscience, they allow themselves to be influenced by it. It can take a long time for some of our false ideas to be removed from us, can it? And so there we need to remember when, when we're dealing with a, um, a weaker Christian or a, a less mature Christian, we were there. I was there. And I was a lot worse probably than them, although that comparison doesn't necessarily need to be made. The point is, are we going to respond to them in love or in arrogance? Knowledge. So in this statement, in verse 7, where he says, however, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol and to now eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. And he's talking to some people here. They're eating food sacrificed to idols. 
Who made them do that? Their conscience being weak is defiled. So he's beginning to instruct the Corinthians how to care for one another, especially a brother who is not as far advanced in understanding theology. If that weaker brother were to eat meat sacrificed to an idol, it would bring confusion and guilt and discouragement. And later on, possibly, he says, ruination. The stronger Corinthians, Corinthian Christians should never do this to a weaker brother. Just because we know something is acceptable not, does not mean that we should force it on someone who isn't prepared to accept it yet. I'm not talking about central doctrinal themes here. I'm talking about the periphery, such as Paul's talking about here. Food offered to idols. Such things as what we eat. He's teaching them. He's starting to teach them. Care for one another. Operate out of care. Operate out of love. Not out of your superior theology. Theology is good. Theology is important. But it's just like anything else in life. It's, isn't it true that it's not often what we do, but how we do it? I've seen this meme. If your wife... Well, I'll, I'll botch it, so I won't use that one. But the idea is, it's not so much the kind of thing we say, but the way we say it. I can say the same thing to my wife in two different ways. And one will elicit a loving response... And she's not a vindictive person, so it's not, she's not going to get angry at me. But the other would elicit at least the question, now, why would you say that? Why would you say that that way? I could say the same thing in two ways. You know, um, were you getting up this morning? I guess now I can't come up with a way to say that differently. <laughs> but you get the point, you know. Are you going to do this? Hey, hun, would you mind doing that? That's, there's two different ways to say it. You're asking for the same thing. But you can get different responses. You can get a loving response or a frying pan to the face. Which I have discovered is why frying pans are made out of cast iron. It's not just for cooking. So Paul is encouraging them. He's teaching them to love one another. We're going to finish up with verse 8. Because that's almost a really... I never know where I'm going to end week to week. But this is almost a good place to end. Verse 8, he says, But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. He's not talking about starving yourself. He's talking about in the context of eating food offered to an idol, of eating food that someone else may have a problem with. Apparently, the stronger Corinthians may have been taunting the weaker Corinthians about this. I say apparently. We, we can't know that for sure. In, in keeping with their silly ideas about being more spiritual in marriage if they didn't consummate the marriage, they might have chided the weaker Corinthians that if they were truly a spiritual Christian, they would eat that stupid meat that came from the idol temple. Paul's point is that food doesn't bring us closer to God, nor does eating certain foods bring us closer or move us away from God. The problem was that those who were weaker were afraid this might happen. And until the Holy Spirit divested of that, divested them of that belief, the stronger Corinthians in forcing them to eat would in fact be causing them to sin, as he will point out later in this chapter. How did they force him, force them to eat? Well, we'll see. We won't get there today, probably, since we're quitting at verse 8. Paul acknowledges that doing things that God has, doing things that God has not forbidden does not necessarily have any bearing on our relationship to Him. And food is a good example of this. It should be pointed out that this does not in any way negate what happened in Acts chapter 15 when the apostles allowed the Gentiles there not to eat meat offered to idols. They would have simply been applying this very principle that those who were weak and unready 
and struggled with the concept of eating meat that was offered to an idol, uh, uh, an idol, were not required to eat that meat. At that time, in that place, the apostles allowed them not to eat meat offered to an idol, knowing, knowing that as they became more instructed in the way of the Lord Jesus Christ, that old false belief would fall away like a scab off of a healed sore. So what we're going through here, like I said earlier, is something of a mini Galatians where we, we have, we stand fast in the liberty where which we were given, which we were given by the Lord Jesus Christ. But in standing fast in our liberty, if we endanger the conscience of another, then we're not standing in liberty. We're sinning. Paul does not want that. The Holy Spirit does not want that. The Father and the Son do not want that. We were not brought to salvation so that we could harm others. But because of the flesh, because of the time it takes for it would be wonderful. Wouldn't it be wonderful if, if I used to study Thesans, but now I guess it's Grudem's. If on your day of salvation, Grudem's theology was in your head, except for the few questionable things. Wouldn't that be wonderful? And you could just refer to page 3,406, line 709, and you'd know. What's more important, what's far more important, is that you love your brothers and your sisters and that you are led by the Word of God through the Holy Spirit. Then your every waking moment will be consumed with building up rather than tearing down. It would be nice if that was true as well. But Paul reminds them here, he says, we're, we're neither the worse if we don't eat nor the better if we do. Bring things into perspective. The lives and the concerns of our weaker brothers and sisters are far more important than what we are eating tomorrow. Are they not? Unless it's bacon. I got I got to put that in there. Even if it's bacon. It doesn't matter, he says, if you eat or if you don't eat. Those things don't commend us to God. So what's remarkable here is that Paul is teaching in 1 Corinthians, this would be being read to the church, to the entire church. So the arrogant, theologically sound Corinthians would be hearing this. And those who struggled with eating meat offered to an idol would be hearing this. So this is teaching going on right now if we were 2,000 years ago in the middle of the Corinthian church, both to the weaker brothers and to the stronger brothers. Now, that means that we should always be doing that. We should always be bringing this information, bringing the Word of God to everyone that will hear it. And the wondrous thing is, the Holy Spirit knows which ones in the in the sitting under God's teaching need this, which ones need that, which ones need this, which ones will respond to that, which ones have this truth a little bit twisted, which ones... Because He is the, is the teacher of all. And so that is to me, at least as a, as someone who gets a chance to be up here and, and bring the Word of God to you is a great comfort that you, you don't depend on me. And that's a good thing. You depend on the sovereign God of the universe to bring to you what you need to hear, just as Paul has said here. And then I'm going to close with verse nine, just stating it. He says this. But take care. I can see him peering over his glasses if they had glasses in first century Corinth. But take care that this liberty of yours did not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Never will we let our liberty be a stumbling block.
to those who would who would be stumbled by our actions. Let's pray. Father, you bring the truth. You bring it in a manner that instructs us, convicts us, encourages us, and divests us of our false ideas. And we are grateful for that. We humbly acknowledge that we need the teaching of your Holy Spirit every day, through every situation. We want to beseech you for the wisdom that you will give without restraint if we are truly coming to you in need, and especially when we come to you on behalf of a brother. Lord, let us be instructed this morning in the way of loving one another first so that our knowledge can actually be put to use. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.